just past 7 o'clock. Another big one on tap for you tonight. So much to get to. It's time for Ira on Sports. This is the True Oldies channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. And Ira, it's been a little while, man. Back in the studio live. I appreciate this. How have you been? I've been great. I went to the mecca of sports, I would say, because I have never been. I've been to an Alabama-Penn State game before in Tuscaloosa. Never Alabama-LSU. And I think it combined Everything I love about sports, or anyone should like about sports, it was the game of the century, as they say, as every year is another one, but just the atmosphere was perfect. Yeah, and I can't wait to hear all about this, because like you said, this is your first, um, you know, go-round, you know, with this, and for you to say, you know, with someone like you who's been to basically every big sporting event ever, <laughs> to, to say that this was up there, you know, with, uh, as far as atmosphere goes, over, like, Super Bowl games, that's just crazy to think about. Well, I think the fact that when you have it on, something on campus in college, it's a big difference. Uh, the Super Bowls and the National Championship games even, they're in a sterile environment. There's fans for both teams. Mm -hmm. This is when you're actually on campus for a big time game. That's great. But I've been to Ohio State, Michigan. I've been to the Penn State, Michigan games and Penn State, Ohio State games, which are tremendous. The mm -hmm. whiteouts. This was better. This was the best event I've ever been to. Can't wait to hear all about this. Just one second uh, from away from that. Um, but I know we've got two guests tonight. Um, tell us a little bit about Randy Williams, who's going to join us at 720. Randy wrote a book. I NFL 150, another one of the series of NFL books uh, about the NFL because they're celebrating the 150th anniversary of the NFL founding. And he wrote it with Jerry Rice. Mm -hmm. So when you have a co-writer, co-writer is the, the greatest writer, uh, a greatest player of all time. Um, he's going to be on. He's going to be on here. He's but he's been a writer for the Post, the LA Times, NFL.com, ESPN.com. So um, it's called America's Game. The actually, name of the book is America's Game NFL 150. And uh, very interesting book. Another historical perspective and I think it's great because everyone looks at the NFL now this I love when we go back and talk about the roots of the NFL and where it began and then he does a lot of rankings of players and things so it'll be great to have him on and then at 7:50 um Andrea Chambly is going to join us and she's got an interesting story as well Right. Well, she, her um, husband wrote, John McNamara was working on a book uh, when he was uh, unfortunately um, killed in a mass shooting in Washington, D.C. for the Capitol Gazette when they raided the Capitol Gazette. And she finished the book. And it's about the basketball players. About Actually, it's called the Capitol Basketball. And if people remember, some of the greatest basketball players in America have all have come from Washington, D.C. And the best high school programs are from Washington, D.C. And she just sort of talks about the history of that. And it's a really cool book. And it'll be interesting to have her on as we're getting into college basketball season and just sort of a nice entry for that. Um, we do have um, some breaking news that we should talk about just before we get into college football. The rookies of the year have been determined. And Ira, I don't think this was too big of a shock this year. Pete Alonzo for the Mets wins in the NL and Jordan Alvarez wins in the AL. You agree with these uh, two choices? Yeah, both great both great young players and uh, and both teams. That, 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 of course, the Astros would have wished Alvarez would have played a little better in the World yeah. Series. And uh, Alonzo... Uh, certainly for the Mets, that's what the Mets needed. They've been looking for someone like him, and I'm high on the Mets for next year. I, I, I think I mean, my Mets fans are all upset, but they really have the same model that the Nationals have, which is great pitching and some key hitters. So, all right, Ira, Alabama, LSU. You know, we've been talking on the show every week about eh, there's maybe one game a week that we look forward to. This was definitely the game of the season that I think every college football fan was looking forward to. You were there, of course. Tell us about it. Well, I chose to go to this game over Penn State, Minnesota, so <laughs> it was a tough call. And, yeah, I know. Weather had, weather had some fact. 
factor, but also the fact is I really want this game was so big and it was just the, the atmosphere and I wanted to experience it. And uh, my girlfriend talked me into coming to this game. She wanted to go to this Alabama <laughs> game. So it was great. I mean, I flew into Atlanta and went drove to Birmingham. So the night before we were at Birmingham, went out to the bars down there and because mm -hmm. Birmingham's like an hour from Tuscaloosa. And it was just great. Even the atmosphere an hour away, you could just feel everyone wearing Bama. Everyone's talking about Bama. It was really, that was really a lot of fun. And I really think the atmosphere of the stadium is perfect. Like you drive down there, and we got there like five, six hours early. Games at, at two thirty their time, so we got there at nine o'clock. Mm -hmm. But you have huge fraternity and sorority houses, and not crappy animal house or but they look <laughs> like they're in Paris or in, in England, like castles almost all around the stadium. They're perfect. And then you also have the tailgating, which you always like when you see a games. And then they have a downtown called the District, which is right next to the stadium, where you have all the, these bars and restaurants. So, like at Penn State, you have the stadium and there's tailgating around it. But if you want to go to bars, you have to walk 30 minutes downtown. Here, it's all around in one spot, and the fraternity houses are enormous. And and they weren't, it wasn't this reveling with drunken debauchery. It was all, I mean, everyone's dressed up. I mean, I've never seen people dress up and well-behaved. I, I asked about a dozen LSU fans I saw there, and it was way more, L I mean, I, I thought there should be more LSU than I saw, mm -hmm. but the fact is, they're like, Nobody yells at them. It was, it was it, you do not, I mean, I wish that the F Eagle fans and the Brown fans and the Raven fans would look at this because this rivalry is so intense and the respect to the other players, it's like, great, everybody was having a good time. Enjoy, just, everything I like about sports mm -hmm. was just that walking around before the game and then they have the statues outside of Saban, of Stallings, of Bear Brinder who was getting the pictures with them. When the team gets dropped off, they have this long walk they go to and there's a zillion fans going crazy. Um, it was just, it was just perfect. We went to a bar and they had, it was like a three level bar. I was watching the Penn State game and it was like on the side of a building. So I'm watching on a 300 <laughs> foot screen, the Penn State game with a DJ playing and everyone's having a good time. They're playing the Penn State game. I'm getting excited for the Alabama game. And it was just that atmosphere before you even enter. That's all before you go to the stadium. And I wasn't <laughs> going to a tailgate. I didn't know anywhere to go to. It was just fun to be there. And it was like, the weather was great and people were excited and you just, and you felt like if, if an LSU said if you were an LSU fan walking by yourself, no one's going to yell at you, no one's going to say anything to you. It was just they're going to be fun. Everyone just loved being at this game. It was they couldn't wait for it to start. Do you think it, some of it has to do with? And you would know better than anyone from all your travels. Do you think part of it and part of the atmosphere is because Alabama has no professional sports teams? You know, even like Green Bay, there's still other teams in Wisconsin. If you're in Alabama, this is what you have. I think some of that, yes, I do think some of that is that is so big. But I, football, they actually have had the the bill. They had this great run with Paul Bear Bryant when they were yeah. the top team in the country. Then they had a couple down years, but they actually won a national title with Gene Stallings in between that. And now they're back becoming the most dominant team. So they they've been this. They have this great history, and they also have the current. They have a great history, but also currently they're tremendous. But it's I've been to USC, UCLA. I've been to these these venues like Ohio State's in a downtown in Columbus, Michigan. Michigan, it's nice, but it's sort of around a neighborhood. Penn State, I love Penn State more than anything, but it's just mm -hmm. really all you're getting is the cars parked around and RVs, and that's fun and that's great, but it's not the fraternity houses and the sorority houses and the downtowns and the cars parked. It, it has everything about it. So tell us a little bit. You mentioned to me that it was somewhat like a rock concert or like an arena-type setting while you were there. 
So we sat on the 30-yard line, 43 rows up. And when you enter the stadium, it's like a dump like all these other stadiums. Like you're not going to a pro stadium. It's mm-hmm. going to be concrete and a metal and whatever. But it's a little different because they do have levels. It's 103,000. Like Penn State and Michigan and Ohio State are just like one section really up the, yeah. whole, the whole way. <laughs> this is, they do have, but their club seats are in the end zone. So they have the NFL-style club seats, but you're sitting in the end zone in that level. But when you walk into the stadium, you actually walk in on the field. Like I've never had that. Like, like anybody can, so you're on the field, you're on field level, and it's hard because there's a zillion people out there, but you walk in there and it's, but I got there an hour and a half, 20 minutes before the game. I mean, there were 80, 90,000 people there, like pumped up for just people walking around. It was, it was great to see that. But what's so interesting about this game is that they, um, <laughs> that they, the one thing is that they, the, what they do with the stadium is they turn the lights off while the game is on, like, Crazy. like in a hockey, and then they turn it back on and the music is blurring. Like they love a ACDC, Thunder, Hell's Bells, all those songs. And it's just, and then they play, of course, the standard Sweet Home Alabama, those type of songs. But it was, it was just when that beginning of the game, when the team ran out on the field, well, first of all, the Million Dollar Man did the national anthem. And then when the team ran out on the field with Thunder, with ACDC, that Thunder song, oh my, it was just deafening. It was once the loudest, it might be the loudest I've ever seen a game in terms of being there. And then that was just made it just, just tremendous. But the, everything, like they played Dixieland Delight. There's a mm-hmm. song that yeah. everyone loved that. They loved Friends in Low Places by Garth Brooks. And uh, whatever they say, first down, Bama. And everyone said, roll time. Like, real loud. I love that. And then they have the, whenever there was a big play, this elephant sound. They had this huge elephant, mm-hmm. like these elephants. I love that. Like, that was great. I mean, it was just, that aspect of the game was just, um, just amazing. I mean, I'm looking what else more. All skydivers landing in there. And then also Crazy. the President of the United States is at the game. Mm-hmm. And, and what added, they were, unlike I was at the Nats game where the President was there about a, three weeks ago or a month ago, and you have to go through TSA security type level and the Secret Service. Here, they, you saw Trump signs everywhere around the stadium. And when they announced him through the game a couple times and showed him, because it was all Veterans Day and all that mm-hmm. aspect of it, the fans, I mean, definitely a huge ovation. People ask, what did he get? Did he get booed? I didn't hear any boos. It was just a huge ovation. Certainly, that's Trump country. But that added an extra aspect to the game because people were saying they don't remember when a president has gone to an on-campus game before. Like presidents go to the Army-Navy game, they go to national championship games, but actually go to an on-campus football game, it was very rare. um, Before we get into the game itself, you always manage to run into important people, especially when you're at these events. Who'd you run into? Well, at the end, I was flying back after the game in the airport, and I saw an LSU fan, and I and I was talking about LSU, and I was asking everybody, were they people nicer? And they're like, well, like, yeah, well, we're in LSU gear now, but we were used to wear, I said, like, big Penn State fan. They go, we used to be Penn State fans. I go, what happened? He goes, well, our son decided to, his son is, was a Penn State football coach, and now he's an LSU football coach. So I'm like, well, what's his name? Like, what position does he coach? He goes, oh, it's John Brady, who is the guru of the offense of LSU, <laughs> and who's now, like, the number one, number one assistant coach in the country who probably can have name his job that he wants to and he's making four hundred thousand a year and they're talking about giving him a two million dollar year assistant coach contract so Crazy. these parents are like uh very humble about it. they were they were they were flying like coach uh, on the plane and mm-hmm. they were nice but it was it was wonderful and they said that to show you the focus of the coach it was like nine o'clock in the morning we were there at the airport and they said they had talked to their son two hours before they had just won in tuscaloosa they had already gone of course back the night before at lsu to baton rouge and he would he had watched film in the morning since 
since in the office, he said since 5 a.m. He went to church and they're back watching films. So that's the focus. I mean, these college coaches have like 130 hour a week. That's what it is like in season. (laughs) It's 7:14. Ira on sports. This is the True Oldies channel. Just about five minutes or so away from getting uh, getting Randy Williams. He's the author of America's Game. A co-author that with Jerry Rice. He'll be joining us in just a couple. So all right, all right, get us into the game. What happened here? Because this was uh, it, it. The game was everything that we hoped it would be. Well, I think what made this game super exciting was that when you listen to it, it was going to be an offense, and people were like questioning the defenses, and it was going to be like the games they had uh, nine six, the famous game when LSU won mm-hmm. the last time they beat Alabama when they won nine six in, in overtime. That this was actually going to be a shootout, and it became a shootout. So people were right that it was. And last year Alabama won and shut Alabama uh, shut LSU out. But the point is, Joe Burrows has advanced to a type of play. He is now a tremendous quarterback, and he. Some people be, are saying he may be the number one overall. Number pick. one overall pick, Heisman Trophy winner, everything. I mean, he played. Tremendous. I mean, this is that's why uh, John Brady gets credit for the fact that that Bros comes out and played this amazing game against Alabama. And then two of the question is he going to be healthy enough? Is that is he? And he was healthy. He played. But you got to criticize the Alabama defense. They played poor. And uh, and and especially I think Tua in that first half was was terrible. I mean, that first drive when Tua threw to Henry Ruggs for 29 yards, Nigel Harris for a 31 yard run, and Tua to Waddle down to 11. Then they called a timeout, and the fans everything was going crazy. And then they introduced Trump then and then the next play is you're like Alabama's gonna score a touchdown Tua fumbles the ball and that was and then LSU goes right down their running back Clyde Edwards Hilaire he only had like a hundred some yards mm-hmm. rushing but he had uh, 77 yards receiving at nine catches a touchdown but uh, he but the borough was throwing to Mark Chase and also Justin Jefferson I mean you had more pro wide receivers on the field to go down and go seven nothing and then go up to ten nothing and Bama was just going three and out I mean Bama after that first drive sort of like stalled they weren't doing anything and then but but of course whenever like LSU had a chance to blow this game out and then Waddle returned that pun return for a touchdown. One of yep. the best pun returns. And as he's running back, like the stadium gets louder and louder and louder. It was on that huge 77-yard run. So it was it was 10-7 at the end of the first quarter. You're like, you're still in a game. And if you're LSU, you're like, wow, we could have really blown this game out. If you're Alabama, you're like, what's going on? It's funny that you brought up, you know, all the NFL talent receivers. Like, I mean, this is we could be looking at, you know, four or five um, you know, NFL like high-end ability players. They're saying um, these Alabama guys might all go in the first two rounds, which is just crazy to think that one receiving quarter could have that much talent. Um, what happened in the second? Well, I think what... So after Alabama scored, what I like, whenever Alabama did something, you saw what Joe Burrow did, respond. Mm-hmm. They came down and just scored another touchdown and made it 16-7. They missed the extra point. And I think that was key. I mean, again, Clyde Edwards-Hilaire, his running game was tremendous. And then on a third and two, I mean, he seemed to convert every key. Burrow completed every third down, just was able to scramble. Alabama couldn't tackle him. He's a big guy. He's like a, almost a Ben Rottenberger, a young Ben. Not mm-hmm. like the old Ben now, but a young Ben that's, a, <laughs> that's elusive in the pocket but can run when he has to. And then Alabama Alabama gets the ball and they're stopped. And uh, there was the, then finally uh, uh, the LSU. The Alabama finally stopped LSU in the middle of the second quarter. It took them for the whole time. And uh, but then Alabama, it was like a big play. The Waddle touchdown, and then on their own 36, Tua throws out that dart to Devontae Smith. I mean, that was tremendous. I mean, Smith ended up with 213 yards in the game, two touchdowns. Judy at five for 71. But that cut it to 16-13. And then it was like, you know, then LSU settled for a field goal, 19-13. But Bama had a lot of those drives where they were just were like three and out, three and out. They got all their yardage on those big, big plays. Mm-hmm. But then LSU had that classic drive where they were throwing and running and Burrow was converting on. He had two times where he had runs of 11 and 19 yards. Just those scrambles. Like you're like, and Alabama's like, what, all these superstars 
on defense, all these NFL guys, like why are they not tackling yeah. him? I mean, that was just unbelievable. So they're up 26-13, 27 seconds left in the, in the in the first half. Everyone's going to the bathroom. They think it's over, whatever. But then Alabama's like, well, we're going to try to score. And, and I think it was smart. You're down 26-13. You have Hall, uh, Heisman Trophy candidate at quarterback, all these wide receivers, but don't throw a short pass, go down. So Tua then throws an interception. What does the LSU do? Score, make it 33-13. So I, I don't blame them for trying to get more points, but if you're going to make a throw an interception, there's only 26 seconds, throw it down to the five-yard line. Like, that's one thing. I would have let these, I let those great wide receivers that Bama had get those balls, go down. I thought that, that play call was horrendous. It, it, it was definitely surprising to me, and, and yeah, it was the more surprising thing was what you said, that Alabama just didn't seem to have an answer with all these guys that are going to be NFL players to, to slow down this LSU defense. So um, we have just about a minute or two until we have to get to uh, Randy Williams. But what happened after that? Well, um, first of all, Burrow in that first half, 18 for 20, 242 yards, three touchdowns, 309 yards. I mean, against Alabama to have a, it was one of the greatest first halves in the history of against Alabama in my lifetime to think that someone would have almost a perfect half. I mean, that was unbelievable. But, um, but then when they, uh, what happened is that LSU in the second and the third quarter, when they had a chance, they're up 33-13. You think, okay, they are going to take over this game. This is what it is. Then they fumbled the ball. And, and so instead of being 40-13, then Bama had a chance that they could come down. So they, they actually then kept playing in the game where Najee Harris started catching and running and made it 33-20. And then Bama's defense, like Burrow started making mistakes, not converting on third downs. The scramblings, they were tackling well. And then Alabama, at the end of the third quarter, Bama had this huge touchdown, another pass to Devontae Smith, where they also went for it on fourth and one on the 13, and they made it. So they cut it to 33-27. So that was like going into that fourth quarter, you're like, okay, now we have a game. It's the game of the century. Alabama, whatever. But, mm-hmm. and, but then, starting that fourth quarter, that drive that LSU had, 12 plays, 75 yards, four and at four minutes and 25 seconds, they converted on third and threes, third and tens, third and thirteens, that all on those slants. Like people, were, the Alabama fans were driving crazy because they were just doing <laughs> slants to Chase and Jefferson, these small little slants. And Burrow was getting, you see that he's an NFL quarterback. He's getting the hand out. He's getting the ball out of his hands quick. He was reading the defenses perfectly. Alabama couldn't stop them, but Alabama responded. After they scored, they have 39-27. Alabama comes down with a 14-play, 75-yard drive. Two, they converted three fourth downs on that play, made it 39-34, but then they couldn't stop LSU. LSU drives down again and, and makes it 46-31. So you think 46-31, the game's over, it's it's like it's, it's going to be finished, but they were able to go and uh, 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 46-34, 46-34, I mean, and then everyone's leaving the stadium. There's a minute and a half to go. What does Tua do? He throws an 85-yard pass to Smith <laughs> to make it 46-41. And then you're like, okay, they have two timeouts left. They can stop. Like They're going to get the ball back. But they couldn't stop him back. Again, so on that one drive that LSU to make it, when they when LSU went from 39 to 46 and just running the ball and running the ball, and then on the on the drive, on that second drive, when all they had to do was get stopped for, for no first downs, and Clyde Edwards carried the entire Bama team over, got that first down there. That was it. I mean, that they could have... I think Bama's like, we were just, if we could have just played another quarter, they would have won the game. But I don't know. They, their defense, when they needed to stop on yep. those last two drives, couldn't do it. No, they, they could not. And that uh, it turned out to be a, a great game, like we were talking about. And I'm glad that you got to be there. It's 721, Iron Sports, True Oldies Channel. Time to bring in excellent author Randy Williams. Randy, are you here with us? Good evening, Ira. Hi, Randy. Well, thanks a lot for coming on. So, uh, Iron Sports. So, your co-author in this book was uh, a guy that I think everyone knows, Jerry Rice. <laughs> and uh, so, talk about your book, America's Game, uh, NFL at 150. In terms of what what thought you what you and why did you and Jerry collaborate to write a book like this at this time? Well, we had um, 
really good success with the uh, 50 years of the Super Bowl. As a matter of fact, it became a New York Times bestseller. And I just basically posed to Jerry, you know, the light bulb went on. I said, hey, look, at how about a little football symmetry? 50 years of the Super Bowl, 100 years of the NFL. And uh, sure enough, you know, he, he likes challenges, and he, he, he took it to heart. So I knew I had to roll up the sleeves. So the, what I love, we've had John Eisenberg, who wrote the, wrote the book, The League, uh, on earlier this year. And I just love reading about the history, like how the NFL started. We go in the stadiums now, and there are these glitz glam, and we're going to have Monday Night Football tonight. It's going to be amazing. Sunday yesterday was tremendous. But talk about, like, how the league began in the first place, you know, in, in a car, in, in the office of a, of a car dealership, and, and, and how the teams were set up, and, 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 and how, just talk about the initial formation of the league. Yeah, I mean, that's a fascinating chapter that uh, kind of goes on. That I would definitely like the, the readers to, to take a look at it. But basically, you know, it's George Hallis uh, coming up with it, and he gathered together a few people interested in pro football. And basically, uh, I raised 100 bucks to join in, and, and nobody collected. So if you can imagine that. Again, you have the idea, and, you, and you're spot on. I think there's so much that people don't realize that uh, I believe in the debt that we owe to the players and the coaches of the past. So, what Jerry and I want to do is create basically a handy reminder of what the league has gone through, you know, including how the players and owners struggled for decades to uh, achieve the success it enjoys today. Because after all, particularly, you know, the, the first 50 years of struggle was a, was a compelling drama in itself. I mean, basically, George, uh, you know, had fly-by-night franchises are coming and going, and they didn't know. They, you know, a tremendous story, Ira, about surviving the Great Depression, surviving World War II, surviving rival leagues so many, many times. The survival of the league was not guaranteed. So, again, it's just something I like to share with the, you know, the current generation about the, the, the amazing story of the NFL. So we're talking to Randy Williams, who co-authored with Jerry Rice the book America's Game, the NFL at 100. So we're coming up to Thanksgiving in a few weeks, and you have a, a, a big chapter in the book about like how the whole Thanksgiving tradition started of, of watching of NFL football. Could you share a little about some of the stories about that? Yeah, actually, um, and again, it, it is interesting. The tradition really started though with the uh, with college football, and, and the NFL embraced it. Uh, the, the 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 new Lions owner wanted to get some separation uh, with his team, and so it was actually the Lions that started it, and it had tremendous success. Ira, and then the, the Cowboys came on, and then now you know we have uh, three games three games on that special day. Right. And uh, so, I mean, that was, that was, I mean, that's, I mean, we're excited. I mean, that's become sort of this whole tradition of Thanksgiving. Uh, and of course, the Lions, unfortunately, the Lions are just bad. Like, we just hope they would be better and they could make some of these games more, more entertaining. But in terms of, you mentioned in your last thing about college football and pro football. And at one point, people don't realize that college football was like, not just better than, I mean, in terms of popular, it was like 100 to 1 more popular than pro football. How did college, how did pro football somehow now, I would, some people would never agree that it surpassed, but how did college, how did pro football somehow, you know, bridge that gap between what people viewed college football, the Michigans, the uh, Ohio States, the, you know, those programs, and then embrace the pro football teams? Yeah, and, it's, uh, and that's a good point. Uh, again, people will get from the, from the book, Ira, is that uh, early on colleges dominated uh, across the country. They're the ones with the big stadiums. They're the ones with the big following. And it was just simply one of the top sports in the country. Uh, and But one of the things was was the George Hallis signing of the great uh, Illinois store, the uh, Illinois player uh, Red Grange, the Galloping Ghost. Uh, and that really started the buildup. Uh, also, it was a tricky line between NFL uh, securing college ball players, and that's a whole other story in there. 
um, to, you know, to supply the National Football League. But again, yeah, college was big. The one thing that really helped the NFL early on in the early days, Ira, was that college football, frankly, was a rather expensive ticket at the time. And also, it was a time when people worked six days a week. So the NFL would play on Sundays, and that's when people would they have the day off in, in, in some cities. Uh, and it was, a, it was a cheaper way to get entertainment and watch football. So that was one other edge that, uh, that pro football had, had in. Yeah, and you mentioned about, and it's interesting, and, and we're talking to Randy Williams, author of America's Game with Jerry Rice, but during World War II, the NFL, people thought, oh my gosh, they're losing their players, their players are going to the war, they're gonna, it's, going, it's, it's not going to survive, but actually, it, that's what World War II is what really in, invigorated the NFL, and it was, it, it was during that period of time the NFL became even more popular with America. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was tremendous uh, um, uh, a period. It's a lot of the college players gave up the, their eligibility to join Uncle Sam's team, uh, as did many of the players that were already in the NFL. So you really had a hodgepodge of people that were basically 4F trying to keep the NFL alive while our uh, players were, were, were abroad fighting the war. And then what happened, then you had these veterans coming back, and then you also had people that just had finished college and were looking to play professional football. So at that time, Ira, as you said, there then became a, a plethora of, of, of talented players. So at that point, then you also had the, the rivalry, the All-American Football Conference that started at that time because there were so many opportunities. So in your book, you say, it was very interesting, you say the, on my Mount Rushmore, right, there's four, you would have George Howells and Pete Rozelle of the NFL, which people would understand. But then you put Lamar Hunt, who a lot of people don't talk about, like Lamar Hunt, who is, we just know him sort of as running the Kansas City Chiefs and being under the Chiefs. Talk about why Lamar Hunt would be on your Mount Rushmore of, uh, of the people who had influence in pro football. Right. Well, once again, I, he was a gentleman that... Uh, just loved sports. His nickname was Games. He had the wherewithal to finance uh, and get financial partners to create a new league once he was rebuffed by the NFL. Again, that's a whole chapter in details that fans can read about. Um, but what he get, did was expand the game to new cities that did not have professional football. And he expanded the opportunities to the best players. In other words, there were more opportunities for black players from small colleges, which were overlooked by the NFL at that time. So he was very vital to expanding the game in several different ways. So I, it's, I, I, I love going to stadiums. I was just at the Alabama and uh, Bryant-Denny Stadium and for college, but I've been to 26, 25 of the 30 football mm -hmm. NFL stadiums. But you have some interesting chapters about some stadiums you'll never get a chance to go to about when the NFL started. And talk about the emergence of stadiums. You, and I loved how your book really highlighted the fact that they, they became, and right now, of course, when you're building the new L.A. stadium, the new Las Vegas stadium. But talk about what the stadiums and maybe some of the quirky little old ones they used to have, but how stadiums have emerged with the NFL? Yeah, again, it's a combination of things. Obviously, with the, uh, with the money that the owners are getting from television revenue and, uh, you know, uh, marketing and sponsors and stuff like that, uh, that really helped uh, boost the uh, financial foundations to build these so-called palatial. But the, the interesting thing that fans will read about, Ira, that's kind of intriguing to me, or the, as you said, the small, quirky ones. You can go back to the, especially in the old AFL days, you had basically the Houston Oilers, who were the two-time champions right out of the block, playing in a uh, glorified high school stadium. And, um, and then an old War Memorial Stadium, uh, the Buffalo Bills had won a pair of championships. And then the 49ers played in Keysar Stadium, 
which is right on the edge of, of, of San Francisco. So uh, those are the quirky small ones which you'll get a kick out of when you when you read about the backgrounds of those places. And you talk about in the first indoor football game, and we have, you know, these stadiums are now becoming uh, indoor and outdoor and retractable roofs and billion-dollar stadiums, was in 1932, the weather was so bad they had to move uh, the game between Washington and Chicago, the NFL championship, inside and played inside that year. Yeah, um, uh, George Hallis was concerned that if, you know, he, he couldn't wait for the weather to clear up, Ira, because uh, that would be like the Christmas weekend, and he's worried about the obviously the live gate. So he basically went into the old Chicago Blackhawks hockey place where a uh, uh, the circus had just left. So they were playing with uh, you know animal droppings and fertilizer and <laughs> condensed boards where you get banging hockey players in. So again, that's a wild, wild thing. And as a result, though, there's a few rule changes that came out of that. And again, just a lot to go into detail there. But yeah, that was definitely an exciting time. And uh, you're right, it absolutely was the first indoor game by, by decades. So we're talking to Randy Williams, the co-author of The NFL at 100 with Jerry Rice. So now you've written two books with, with Jerry. Uh, talk about, you know, he's considered, it's very interesting when people say the greatest quarterback. Now it's Brady, but for at this point, but when you say greatest running back, it could be Jim Brown. But there could be some debate. There really is no debate. I've never heard anyone make a case for anybody else but Jerry Rice being the greatest wide receiver of all time. Talk about your just working. We've had to spend, I'm sure, hours and hours with him in writing these books. Give me some personal impressions of Jerry from your experiences. Well, again, I think the, the, the biggest thing is that he, if he takes on a challenge, then you know you've got to be at your best and, and on the top because that's, that's what he demands. And uh, so we you know, laid out a program like uh, we had a shorthand from working on the Super Bowl book. We wanted to cover certain things. And you know we 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 agreed. I mean, Jerry just says, yeah, we you know we kind of have to uh, do it like almost like a uh, scrapbook rather than an encyclopedia, you know, to get it into into one book. So he would you know kind of go with me as to what we've got to make sure we cover at the very minimum. But the thing that was good from his perspective, Ira, was that Jerry just thought, you know, he had he had played for a Hall of Fame coach, so he wanted to know what it'd be like to play for Lombardi or for Hallis and. You know, he had great quarterbacks throwing to him, so you wanted to get insights into going all the way back right to Unitas and Sammy Baugh. And then, of course, you know, he went up against great opponents like uh, the, the the great defense. So he wanted to know about, you know, the fearsome force and then purpley, purpley people leader, excuse me, and it just mushroomed from there. And, again, the idea that Jerry was wanting was that something, Ira, that you can reach back for time after time and, you know, thrill to some fascinating stories that help shape the NFL, you know, years from now. So that's kind of what Jerry's, uh, you know, input was with me. Well, and I think it was great. I mean, that's it's it's great when you, I, you have a lot of quotes from a lot of the players, and I, it seems like there's now with this NFL at 100 a lot of this appreciation because you want to see. I mean, we we leave, live in the current moment of the players, but when the players go back and like look at the history and appreciate the old timers that show up at the games, you like to see that. I mean, I think that's good to understand that these old timers weren't signing the multi-million dollar contracts; they were working five jobs and playing football at the time. And when you see some of this appreciation from the younger generation of the guys that were built this league. It's that's what you like to see. Absolutely, I mean, and you hit it right on the head. I, I mean, uh, uh, it, it, the cast of characters change, and it's you know obviously you can't compare really uh, fairly uh, athletes from different eras. You can just really for their for their performances at the time. But the point of it is, is that there's so much media now, and there's we're already to anoint everybody as the greatest. I felt strongly that, hey, we hold on here. There's some really, really, really super people that fill the decades here in the past. 
and that you should, you know, uh, put a put a nod to them. So that's kind of what you know was one of the motivating factors for me. Well, Randy, well, thanks again for coming on Iron Sports. I really appreciate it. And the book is America's Game, the NFL 100. It's available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Apple Books. You could read it online. You could go to bookstores. So it's, uh, I actually got the book online, so it was on, on Apple Books. So it's a, it's a great book to read. And uh, if you love the NFL I would, and you want to learn more about the history, it's a perfect book to read. Thanks a lot for coming on. I, I, thank, I thank you. I enjoy being on the show. It's 7.35. You're listening to Ira on Sports. This is the True Oldies channel. <clears throat> All right, Ira, so let's keep going with college football. Obviously, you couldn't attend both Penn State and Alabama LSU. Surely Penn State's performance trailed off a little bit without you in the in the stands because I know you're a, a big motivating factor for the uh, Nittany Lions. But this was a game that got overshadowed. Be- and it, it, realistically, you have two ranked teams, knew it should have been a good good game. It was. And, I mean, I, I think most of America is kind of shocked and Minnesota came out on top. Well, Minnesota had the 82nd easiest schedule. They had beat South Dakota State, Fresno State, and two overtimes in Georgia Southern. So it was not really yeah. 35-32. And the t- Big Ten teams, they played Purdue, Illinois, Nebraska, Rutgers, and Maryland. It's funny is that every one of them played them with a backup quarterback. So they really <laughs> were 8-0 and going into the game and hadn't done anything. They haven't won a Big Ten title since 1967. But their new coach, P.J. Flack, he's 20-13 and 13 at Minnesota. Everyone likes him. They just signed a, a long contract. I mean, you're seeing Purdue with Jeff Brom, now P.J. Flack at Minnesota. These Big Ten schools are like, look, we don't want them to go to bigger programs. We don't go, one, go move up. We want to actually keep them here, and they have the money to pay. And this was a big win for them. And I, Penn State, the thing that goes underlooked in the game is that uh, Anthony Shelton and Micah Parsons were out for the first uh, like part of the game. Now, Shelton was out the entire game for spitting on the last game where he was suspended. He was one of the star defensive players. And Micah Parsons is their all-American defensive uh, linebacker. But he set out for some unknown disciplinary reasons. But that let Minnesota get out to start of the game. I mean, their quarterback, Tanner uh, Morgan, I mean, he was, he was tremendous. He was 18 for 20, 339 yards, three touchdowns on a defense that people considered the second best in the country. And Penn State looked terrible uh, in the beginning part of the game and, and that I think was that set the tone and uh, but Penn State hung in there I mean it was down they were cut they cut it to 24-19 and then when it went up to 31 uh, it, w- it was like it was up 31-19 Penn State came down scored an- another touchdown uh, but then Penn State was driving like on the 31-26 I'm trying to watch the game in the stadium <laughs> so it was hard and then I lost the signal at the last second so they're up five and Penn State had this great drive down there and uh, and then but Jahani Dotson was running now I watched the highlights after the game I watched I actually did watch the entire game again. And when I watched it and I knew that they lost, when Dotson was running with the ball, I'm like, how in the world did he not score? He was, it was like a 49-yard pass. He just fell down. Like he wasn't, I didn't look, he was even tackled. And I was shocked that he fell down. And then they were down and they got down to like the two-yard line, but then they called the pass interference. Uh, and everyone, I don't know, you know, they, they've been calling that all the time. When I first heard the reports on Daniel George, when he it was a passive offensive pass interference, they, but that's how they've been calling it. I don't know if it's that bad a call. My friends who are Penn State fans would never agree with that, <laughs> but they've been calling it. It's totally like a pick play, which you do. And then that set up a third and 21 and then Clifford threw the interception. Uh, Clifford didn't have a good game. I mean, he had two interceptions. This Antoine Winfield for Minnesota had two interceptions in the game. He had seven for the year. He was tremendous. Clifford didn't look great. I mean, this was a weird game, and I'm upset. Penn State had a week off. Um, they just this is this is a bad loss for for Penn State and one that they didn't rise to the challenge of being at home. This was a big game for Minnesota. They knew what they were going into, and they just got beat by a team that played better than them. Antoine Winfield, uh, senior, excellent, excellent cornerback. And it's funny, uh, you know, Minnesota Vikings legend and uh, his son playing uh, right there at Minnesota as well. Um, 
where do you put Minnesota as far as rankings go after this? I mean, they're not going to go to the top four, but they're 17 now, I believe. So where do you slot them in after a huge win like this? Well, I, I, they have to be in the top seven or eight, but they, they, the thing is that they control their destiny, per se, because if they can keep winning the Big Ten West and they have Iowa and uh, Wisconsin left, which they're going to be their underdogs next week against Iowa even, if they can beat Iowa, Wisconsin, and Ohio State, then they're going to play in the playoffs. Now, some people, most people think they're going to lose to Iowa, then they play Northwestern and Wisconsin, so they'll have two losses and they'll play in the in the Citrus Bowl. Mm-hmm. So, but right now, what they're looking at is that they they're one of those teams like Alabama is looking for other teams to lose. Minnesota can just say, look, if we just win our games, we're undefeated, we're going to be playing the College Football Playoff. It's crazy to think that yes. a team like Minnesota could be there. Um, just real quick, Ohio State and and uh, Maryland faced off. Can you explain to us what's going on with this whole Chase Young thing? Because this is something very bizarre in the, in the world of the well, NCAA. Well, Chase Young admitted, where, admitted that he suddenly came out that someone gave him last year some money to pay for his girlfriend to go to uh, the Rose Bowl. It's a family friend. And the, and the NCAA came in, and it looks like they gave him a four-game suspension, but it's under review because of the price of the ticket. But the point is that it's a family friend. I mean, this is the other aspect of this whole family friend thing. Like, if the person, if you're friends with somebody and they gave you money, I mean, then, and, it was, and at first it came out of it was an agent, but then now it's not an agent. It was just a friend to say, hey, I want to find my girlfriend. I'm playing the Rose Bowl. What's so hard? And he, it's a loan he paid back. Why he has to sit out four games? Totally ridiculous. And, it, and well, they, if, hopefully for Ohio State, they could just be suspended for the Maryland game and they play Rutgers next week where they're favored by 50. And I'm sure that Ohio State could just pull some people out of their dorms and be Rutgers. There was a story that if Rutgers played the first football game, it was 150th anniversary in, in college football. It was, I think, this coming week when if, and what the day was. And if Rutgers played Princeton now, Rutgers would be a point and a half point favorite. I mean, that's not all. I mean, Rutgers is terrible. They're 50 and a half under. So they don't really, they didn't him last week against Maryland when they won 73-14 and they don't need him next week, but they certainly would need him for Penn State and Michigan coming up. So they'll hope, I think they're going to reduce the suspension to two games. Any other um, college games you want to touch on before we have to move on to the uh, NFL? Clemson blew out NC State 55-10. Georgia had a good win over Missouri 27-0 and people forget that Georgia can still still go through through that. I listened to the Ohio, the Oklahoma-Iowa State game and this is what why Oklahoma if they have one if you say the big 12 winner is there and they still have they didn't make it over the one loss Alabama they were up by 21 in the fourth quarter and they were Jalen Hurts was terrible he threw a bad interception their defense folded and Iowa State was at 42-41 and they went for two they could have kicked the extra point and tied it but they went for two and didn't make it and they lose by one and Baylor who's the undefeated Big 12 team they were tied uh, they were they went to triple overtime to beat TCU and didn't play well in those games locally uh, Florida killed Vanderbilt 56-0 Miami might have found a quarterback with Jaron Williams yep. with their big win over Louisville <clears throat> and Florida State they're trying to get to that bowl game with an interim coach go one six and five and uh, it was interesting Appalachian State beat South Carolina 20 to 15 remember South Carolina we had Steve Tanu on he said be careful about Appalachian State yeah. now South Carolina beat Georgia and Appalachian State they have one loss so they're a really good team but that was a big win there um, next week uh, at the noon games Ohio State Rutgers uh, Bama plays Mississippi State Bama's favored by 21 I like them in that game Indiana at Penn State Penn State's minus 14 and uh, Michigan State at Michigan Michigan's actually favored by 12 in that game 330 games Clemson's 31 point favorite over Wake and I really think Clemson after being out of the the, people were sort of talking about how they didn't have that great schedule I think they're going to start running these scores up so I like them big in that game and the big game of the day is Georgia at Auburn because that's Auburn doesn't have a chance to get in the playoffs 
playoffs. But if they but they could knock Georgia out because even if Georgia wins the SEC, they're not going in with two losses. And then Minnesota's at Iowa. So those 330 games are going to be great. And then at night, you have LSU at Mississippi. And look, LSU looks beyond the greatest. LSU looks like they're amazing. But, boy, they're going at Mississippi. The atmosphere is going to be great. A night game. It's 21-point favorite, but it's college football. And then the big game at night is Oklahoma-Baylor. And the games you're going to be interested in is UCLA at Utah. Utah's a 23-point favorite in Arizona at Oregon. And, like, the whole aspect of, of, the, of the college football right now, with LSU, Ohio State, and Clemson. I mean, really, they went out there in. And then every, Bama's like, is Bama going to get in with that one loss? And my feeling is this. If Oregon, they are... Two years ago, Bama got in with one loss, and they didn't win. They were knocked out. They did. They had lost earlier, and they, and they did not make it to the to the title game. Mm-hmm. And Ohio State won the Big Ten title, but Ohio State had two losses. They had lost to Oklahoma and Iowa, and Alabama got in. But I do not think that—I think they, Alabama needs these other teams to have two losses. And I, I would see that—I would think that Oregon—so be careful if you're a Bama fan. You've got to look for, for Oregon. They still have to play Arizona, Arizona State, Oregon State, plus the Pac-12 title game. But you got to have them have two losses, and even Utah would have to have two losses to get in and I think Penn State has no chance and I, I guess if Penn State beat Ohio I guess if Penn State beat Ohio State and won the Big 12 Big Ten Championship game then they would get in but that's that's a tall tale to beat to beat to beat Ohio State but they still potentially have that but Oklahoma Baylor they're in the back like I don't unless Baylor goes undefeated I don't think Oklahoma even if they run the table now the the Big 12 what they do is they have to still play this week but in three weeks for the Big 12 championship game they take the first and second place so Oklahoma might play Baylor again mm-hmm. and but it's look this is pumped this is exciting I think Bama Bama's schedule they they was they did play that non-conference it was weak they played Duke New Mexico State Southern Mississippi Western Carolina they really don't Power have those <laughs> those, those, those were not big wins. And and this might mean that you might have a team like Alabama that people are like, wow, they might be the best team in the country, but they're not going to be because they have no chance to play in the SEC title game. And they have, they're going to play uh, Texas. They're going to play Texas A&M. They're going to play, I mean, I'm sorry, they're going to play Auburn, uh, Mississippi State, and Western Carolina. And that and only the Auburn game is going to give them any points that while they're playing so well. It's 744, Ira on sports, just about five or so minutes away from being joined by Andrea Chambly. Going to be a great interview with her. Ira, let's go to the NFL. We don't have all that much time, but um, going to Thursday night's game, this was a, a, a really good win for the Raiders, I would say. It's a statement game. Derek Carr looks good, and you have to be encouraged if you're a Oakland fan. One of the last games in Oakland. People say, well, this doesn't matter for Oakland. Oh, it does matter because they want to get this momentum to come into Vegas. I mean, Vegas, you don't want to be 2-14 going into Vegas. <laughs> and now this team, everyone's criticizing all the moves they were making. Uh, but this was this was a great win for them. I mean, the, the uh, and Phillip Rivers, just, I mean, you, you're waiting. I mean, people thought the Chargers were going to go to the Super Bowl this they year. They just beat the uh, uh, Green Bay the they week just beat Green Bay, And he throws two interceptions like the Steeler game. This is exactly how the Steeler game went. Where he was terrible at the beginning, great in the middle, and terrible at the end. Where he threw the two interceptions, they're down 2 nothing. Then he plays really good, comes back, takes the lead. And then, he, then, he, then he's not able to win. Throws another interception at the end of the game. And Derek, and then the Raiders just did enough to win. And they have this great, good young running back. He's going to be Rookie of the Year and Josh Jacobs. And Derek Carr is not making mistakes. And Gruden's coaching a good game. And with all the noise that you had, with, I mean, look, they're five and four, and the Chargers are four and five. But that one game matters a lot, and that was it was a big win for both for the for the Raiders. And, and I think you're right. I think uh, Josh Jacobs pretty much has wrapped up rookie of the, and this is an impressive rookie class with Bosa and, and all these other guys. But he's just been phenomenal, about as good as you can hope for uh, when you draft a, a running back early. Rams and Pittsburgh. I 
think some people thought this was going to be a trappy, tricky game for the Rams. And if they did, then they were absolutely right. Pittsburgh looked good. That defense is good. I don't think it's a trappy, tricky game. I think the Rams stink. Yeah, I, I, think, think I think they're way <laughs> overrated. I think they, they, they made the Super Bowl last year, but you saw them. They were on fumes going into the Super Bowl. And I just think that this team has not played well this year. I saw them against San Francisco. They looked terrible. And they, they were, I mean, they had, fifth, this is the stat, they had 15 drives in the game. They scored three points. This is supposedly this great offense with multi-million dollars, Gurley and mm-hmm. Goff and Cooper Cup and everything, and they scored three points because their touchdowns, their points were on a safety and and uh, and a, yeah, and, a defensive and first touchdown. play on the first minute of the game. The Steelers fumble a snap, they run it in for a touchdown, uh, and then and that and after that, they all they got was a, was three points. They were one for four. This is NFL football team one for fourteen on third downs, and uh, but also I think the play. I mean, the Steelers got a, I think a good call. I, that Goff, there was a play where Goff went back and it looked like he threw the ball, but they called it a fumble. Minka Fitzpatrick picked it up and ran in for a touchdown. I thought that was his arm was going forward. And I look, I'm glad the Steelers got the call. <laughs> but there was a couple. You saw that all day where these close calls where quarterbacks are getting stacked. They're trying to throw the ball. And they always ruled it as a pass in completion. They didn't rule it a fumble. But the Steelers got a huge benefit with that. And, and Minka Fitzpatrick has been just a, 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 a tremendous. When they made that trade, oh, why are the Steelers are doing that? They're 0-4. They're terrible. Their season's over. Don't give a first round draft pick and he's now he can become the NFL defensive player of the year the way he's playing (laughs) we talk about him every week and every week he gets better he has six uh six uh takeaways in seven games between interceptions and fumble and he's also scoring touchdowns on them and but I thought in that second half boy the the Rams whole game was they had it was a third and two Goff got hurt and Blake Bortles came in they snapped it to, to Bortles and it was like a total mess like no one knew what to do then they're on their own 29 yard line and it's a total disarray they're it's still there it's the you know, they're only up down 14-7. It was a, still a close game. And the, it's in the middle of the beginning of the third quarter, and they try a fake punt, and that <laughs> they threw an interception off that. Like, what were they doing? Like, I don't understand Sean McVay. Like, that was so stupid. And I think when people talk about all these plays that happened, I, that, I don't know why. I don't think nobody's watching the game at the time. That was idiotic for him to try a fake punt at that point. Um, that was just ridiculously stupid. And uh, But the, the Steelers... I'm telling you, the Steelers did not look good on offense, too. I mean, they got Mason Rudolph gets in a safety. Uh, two games, the Browns and the Steelers, both the quarterbacks had bad safeties in the game, and they still come yep. back and win the game. I mean, Aaron Donald, uh, the star player for the Rams, so it's the first time he was back. He was star at Pitt, star, grew up in Pittsburgh, and it was his first game in Heinz Field, and so he got a safety, and that was good. Uh, but the the Steelers, um, they, like, they went up. They got a field goal, went up 17-12, and the Rams went down to the 30, and they and they were unable. They had two chances, actually. They were down. The Steelers up 17-12. The Rams twice went down there and couldn't score uh, because the Steelers could, had no running game. I mean, they had they they gained their average yard was like one and a half yards. Rudolph didn't pass that well. It's, it's totally, the one thing that was happy for the Steelers fan is that James Washington was his roommate in college at Oklahoma State. They threw 31 touchdowns together. And everyone thought, in fantasy, Washington is going to really team up with, with Rudolph. And it hasn't happened. But it finally happened this game. He had a good game, mm-hmm. scored the touchdown. Jalen Ramsey shuts down Juju Smith-Schuster. But Washington uh, played really well. How funny is it that Jalen Ramsey criticized Blake Bortles, gets traded? <laughs> to play Portals team and has him back under center even if, I, they don't uh, make if it, only temporarily. They're not talking about that at all. No, I mean, that's, nobody is. <laughs> it's, but look, the Steeler defense is great. I mean, uh, Dupree is playing great. Devin Bush is playing great. The, the defensive line. I like the Steeler team. That's why I thought if they would have been as quarterback, this team was good. And if you look at the rest of the American Football Conference, it's for the, if they if they had been and they had played, they'd have lose some of those early games. I think this is like they would, this would, this was a team that was a Super Bowl contender. Now, I just am not convinced that Mason could do that. But against who they're competitive, competitors are, I mean, Indianapolis has Brian Hoyer as their quarterback. 
and he did not <laughs> look good either. Um, let's talk about the Lions and the Bears real quick. Bears get back in the winner column, but I don't think this proved anything about Trubitsky, even though he had a good stat line as far as touchdowns. That was weird. Three touchdown passes for him, but only 173 yards and like with 25 yeah. passes. They were up 20 to 6 with seven minutes to go, and they almost lost the game. And they were playing now. I've, Matthew Stafford, who is like, no one talks about Matthew Stafford as this quarterback, but he's been had a great career. Not a year that he's been in the playoffs or what everything, but he has not his his, his first start that he missed since 2010, 136 starts. Yeah. Um, and Driscoll came in and played well, but it, it, I just think the Bears at the end of the game. I was watching that game and I could not believe that the Bears were just giving up and Trubisky couldn't even move the ball in the fourth quarter, and they're still a mess. I mean, they're 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 four and five. The Lions are three five and one. They're totally out. The Bears are four and five are probably out of the playoffs right now unless a miracle comes. But again, not impressed with them. But it was. It, it's entertaining game. Um, let's talk real quick about Baltimore. You got to be excited if you're a Baltimore Ravens fan, just because Lamar Jackson. He may never win a Super Bowl, but, man, is he exciting to watch on Sunday. Well, he does, like, a 360 run. I mean, he's the highlight film, and he's, like, doing—now they decided just to have him pass and run. He had a 100 quarterback rating. He was 15 for 17 for 225 yards, three touchdowns, and then and then he, and then he ran—I mean, he carried almost all the balls the whole time running. So he just did everything out on the field. And, again, I just—when you look at Cam Newton, who was put on IR, you just wonder how much longer can Lamar Jackson—can you put a guy running and passing and, and, and doing that? But right Right now they're seven and two. They look. They did what they had to do. They're playing a bad Cincinnati team that benched their quarterback and Andy Dalton. Like you don't want to have a close game. Like in all these games we're talking about, what a great day of football. Every game came down to a field goal. They made sure this game was over. And that's what I thought that the Saints were going to do to the uh, to the um, Falcons, but obviously we didn't get that result. We do have uh, Andrea Chambly on the line. Andrea, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, thank you for having me, Ira. Andrea, um, th thanks for coming on. And we, we're not totally, we're starting with college basketball season. We had it last week. Um, but you wrote a book with, well, first of all, your story is, is interesting and, and sad because um, John McNamara was working on this book called The Capital of Basketball because of his love of, the, of just basketball and of Washington, D.C. And, and, and unfortunately, in a mass shooting, he was killed at the Capitol Gazette years ago. And you took upon his book and finished it uh, to write this uh, to write this excellent book about basketball. His labor of love became your labor of love, and so to, sort of talk about give us some background with John and and about about his life and what he was able to contribute to sports and to Washington D.C. Well, thank you. I think John was writing this book in his head after his first basketball game. He said that he realized. With the caliber of the game here, he was an arm's length away from people not much older than he was, and some of them were going to end up in the NBA and even in the Hall of Fame. And um, he decided to put his stories down on paper um, about 13 years ago when Bob Dwyer died. He was the coach of the um, Archbishop Carroll Lions. He had a 55-game uh, winning streak and, and over 30 years as a coach. And um, he decided he better get these stories down uh, as soon as he could. So he spent hours every night meeting with players and coaches and going to libraries and, and copying the microfiche and taking notes and, and typing them up. And, and I found his files when I finally found the wherewithal to go into his den. And I saw these boxes that were just lined up with files by school and year and player 
and and I knew where he had backed up his files. And when I found out how far along he was, and and that this was his love letter to basketball, that I decided these stories needed to be out there. And with David Elfin's help, I was able to finish it. Well, a lot of people, the book is called The Capital of Basketball. Um, it's by John, McEnroe, John McNamara uh, and his uh, widow, Andrea Champlee. Uh, the one thing people, when they talk about basketball, they talk about New York City and Chicago. D.C. doesn't seem to get in the mix, but when you look at the, when you read your book and all the great players that have come from D.C., it's just, they, D.C. should be up there with the Chicago's and the New York's as a, as a center of basketball. Well, John frequently told me that um, D.C. has more Hall of Famers and more NBA players than any other city in the world. Uh, we have Dave Bing and Austin Carr and Adrian Dantley and Danny Ferry and Adrian Branch and Sherman Douglas, and, and we all still miss Len Bias. And, um, and, and not only the people on the court who we marvel at their talents, but um, – Although people still say basketball was invented in Springfield, Massachusetts, I don't think anybody would recognize the game up there. It was a nine-man passing-only game. And it was Washingtonians that decided it needed to be a five-man game with dribbling. And that, that gave them a chance to outplay everybody on defense. And, um, and we have one of the first referees from here who fought for uh, a limit on the number of fouls because people were getting thrown off the court uh, by, by the competition so they could uh, drop the ball. And so the, the game really turned into the game we know today here in Washington. And the one thing you, you highlight in your book and, and what we know about is that the high school basketball and, and, and just the coaches and the teams and, and some of the greatest games have ever that people could have ever seen were between two great players that played in high school and, and the excitement in the gyms. I mean, nothing is better than in a, in a two 3,000-person gym and seeing two NBA Hall of Famers go at it and again, future Hall of Famers going at it and, and talk about, I mean, the history of, uh, with, the, with the high school coaches and the players. Sure. I mean, we had um, Earl Lloyd and Elgin Baylor and um, and Red Auerbach are all from here. And um, and you would people would travel all over the city when they heard about a big game. And if somebody had a relative coming down from Chicago or New York on those hot Washington summers, um, there was no metro here yet and no beltway. They would walk for hours go see where they were playing and they would stay there all day and play each other um, and and it it just made basketball woven into the fabric of this city well we're, we're talking to andrea chamblay she's the uh author with john mcnamara of the capital of basketball um talk about a little in terms of where why, why? I think one thing that's interesting is that the, the college teams, now Georgetown had that grip of the city for a while, but it wasn't, besides Georgetown, it, it's the other college teams have not become these national powers. Uh, and, and because a lot of the D.C. players, like when a Kevin Durant leaves the area and goes down to Texas, it's, it hasn't, it was for a long period of time, D.C. hasn't been able to keep their, these great high school players in the city to play college basketball. That's true, and uh, um, Maryland and Georgetown never liked playing each other because they would lose bragging rights if they lost a game. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and Mike Krzyzewski is famous for coming up here and sitting in the audience and taking some of our best <laughs> players, and, and he seemed to delight in um, 
taking players away from Maryland's coach, Lefty Drizel, who considered himself quite a recruiter. And and I even got um, Coach K to write a, uh, something about the book in here. So uh, he recognizes the area, and he says when, when he wants to see a good high school game, he just comes to Washington, D.C. So if you want to see um, great players, and the coaches here are really remarkable. We have coaches that have coached for – 40 years like Morgan Wooten, who was uh, wooed away by college teams and finally turned them down, um, and uh, and Bob Dwyer and Joe Gallagher, who, who've coached these programs for 30 years and really instilled in players a, a understanding of the strategy of the game and and how to play tough defense and how to uh, how to play teamwork. Uh, there are so many players in here who could have broken records, but they gave up the ball uh, for their team. And they, they played uh, multiple positions and, and they sacrificed their own stats for their teammates. Well, I mean, I, my experience with D.C. basketball was that uh, Altoona, Pennsylvania, where I'm from, we were uh, ranked in the country and had two NBA players on, on our team And uh, when I grew up. And they played. St. John's had just beat DeMatha. was the number one team in the country. And St. John's came into Altoona and in this major game, the biggest game they say in the history of Altoona. It was like lines around the building. And it was and Altoona won with Doug West, who was a star player, went on to the NBA for Minnesota. And they won the game in double overtime. So and you're talking about Joe Gallagher and, and St. John's in terms of that experience of when, when they came in. I mean, the name of D.C. basketball just coming to Altoona was, was huge. And they talk about that game you know, 30, years, 30 years from now. The, the game was 30 years sure. ago. Yeah, and people who say they were there, and you're not sure if they really were because everybody wants to <laughs> say they were there or think or sees the game in their head. Uh, yeah, uh, we, have, we have similar stories to tell about uh, people who scored at – there's one player, 75 points in the game, of course, before the three-point line, uh, even remarkable if there was one. But but we've had some prolific scoring in, in this town, and it's really exciting to watch. So, well, anyway, we've talked to... Not, it's not just a dunking contest here, either. It's real strategy and teamwork and, oh, that, and that comes from the coaches yeah definitely for the coaches but yeah. andrea thanks a lot for coming on iron sports she's the author of the capital of basketball with john mcnamara um who and it's a book about the history and the players that made washington dc basketball so great so andrea thanks so much for coming on the show thank you for having me I appreciate it. It's 8 o'clock on the button. <clears throat> You're listening to Iron Sports, True Oldies Channel. Just got a minute or two left here. I, um, back to the NFL real quick. Buffalo and Cleveland, this game, it, Cleveland got a win. I don't think this really proves that Cleveland's good or Buffalo's that bad. I don't know what to make of this one, but regardless, uh, Cleveland gets their first win of the season at home. Boy, was it exciting to see Kareem Hunt. Now, Kareem Hunt has not played. Remember, he played at Kansas City, was was, suspended, was cut for defense, uh, mm-hmm. domestic violence incident, sat out for eight games. He's from Cleveland, actually, so the incident happened in Cleveland. He mm-hmm. comes in that game. No one's heard of anything. He's been sort of out of the everything. He comes in amazing. He had four rushes for 30 yards, seven catches for 44 yards. The excitement that he brought in the game with all the pieces. I'm telling I know Cleveland is three and six. I, you still think they can make the playoffs. They, you think they might have a better shot than teams with five and four. And, and all the shots that, that Freddie Kitchens is taking and Baker Mayfield's been taking, I just think that this is like, I could see Cleveland sneaking in. There was um, two games that I picked yesterday, Iram. One of them was looking at... Uh, 
uh, the Ravens minus nine and a half. I'm like, okay, they're going to crush Cincinnati. But the other game was Atlanta and New Orleans. Looking at this, man, thinking Atlanta's getting two touchdowns versus a division opponent that just doesn't seem right. Who would have thought that Atlanta would win outright? They had six sacks yesterday. They had seven going into the game. That's just amazing. Right. I mean, but I saw the game when you're giving that many points with Matt Ryan, Julio Jones. It's just like eventually these are professional athletes yeah. who are paying millions of dollars that they're going to come and have a good game. But I was it was scary that New Orleans played poorly. They played poorly at home and they and Drew, Drew Brees, no touchdowns, no interceptions, but just a weird overall game. And it was like they just couldn't get I was watching the game. They just couldn't get into it. They couldn't yeah. get the first. Camaro wasn't playing good. Um, boy, but that's what's scary thing. Like New Orleans seems to have those games. You want to have the games now not in the playoffs but they need that home field advantage so more than anything that hurt them their chances to get that home field because now they have two losses if San Francisco wins they're going to be undefeated yeah no it, it's uh it's not what they needed especially um especially versus that division opponent who gets to go back with the bragging rights uh Ira it's a bad time to be a New Yorker the Giants and the Jets this was the toilet bowl yesterday and it, it I mean good win for the Jets I guess this was ugly both teams were terrible. I don't know. I guess the question is, are you so excited how Daniel Jones played? Uh, Saquon Barkley, 13 carries for one yard. It's like, I, I just think it was a weird game. And, and you just look at both these teams, and you're like, I think they, it, it, the Giants think they're further down the path than the Jets. And when they then they lose to the Jets, and you're like, I don't know if we're so far, if they're so far down. It was a weird game, and uh, but I think all New Yorkers are upset. They both have two wins now because the Giant fans have been saying, look, it's, we have the quarterback we want, our quarterback's better, our running back's young, Barkley, and then they lose. That was, um, yeah, the Giants should should win that game, you know, based off, you know, their momentum, how the Jets have been playing. Kansas City and Tennessee, it's Patrick Mahomes' uh, first game back after missing two um, due to a, a dislocated kneecap. He filled out the stat line, but they didn't get the win at the end. He filled up the stat line. He had 446 yards, three touchdowns, and he lost to Ryan Tannehill. Ryan Tannehill. And I'm telling you, if you looked at the end of the game, when Kansas City's up 29-20 after they scored a 60-yard pass to Hardman, you thought, okay, that's it's over. They're up 29-20 in the fourth quarter. But Tannehill had this great drive. I mean, Tannehill was playing like Joe Burrow did, completing the passes he had to, running, scrambling. I mean, everything that you, I mean, you're looking at my Dolphin fan, you're like, wow, he's better than, why do we get rid of him? He played great that game. Smart, cutting it to 29-27. And then Kansas City, um, they, they were settling for field goals. They attempted five field goals in the game. So as much as they were going up and down the field when it counted. Mahomes, this is what happens with some of these passing offenses. They can't score when the field gets smaller. And that's why they're relying so much on their field goals and that hurts them in total points. And when your field goal kicker is missing field goals, then that's not good. Uh, the Titans, when they had, they had a fourth and fourth and 17 and, uh, uh, and they, they actually gave the ball back. So at one point, the Chiefs had the ball back. They were they had a chance to go up uh, um, 35, 30, you know, go up more points and they, they couldn't, you know, they missed the, actually missed the field goal. Mahomes couldn't get the first down. They couldn't convert. They went full three and out. It was just a mess. Uh, but the Chiefs go down, and they had a chance to tie the game at the end, and they missed that field goal. So they were they missed two field goals at the end of the game. They couldn't convert a first a third down, and all Tannehill did was lead a nice drive down and score the touchdown. To win. You brought up something interesting uh, before the show started. So let's say Aaron Rodgers has been the quarterback for, what, seven or eight years of, of Green Bay. Drew Brees obviously there the entire time uh, that, that Aaron Rodgers has been there. 
do you think there's ever been a day where Drew Brees and Aaron Rodgers both didn't have a passing touchdown? That's impossible. And I couldn't get a stat for that, but I couldn't believe that Rodgers and Brees, who, if they played a full game, wouldn't have scored a touchdown. And Rodgers played a pedestrian good game, uh, but, but 233 yards. But, you know, Carolina had that chance. I mean, that was what's everyone. There were so many close games. I mean, Carolina's down there at the end of the game, ready to tie. And then McCaffrey, they hand it off to him. It's snowing. It's a Lambeau field. He gets down. I thought he scored. I, I mean, what are these things where I'm watching that game? He was and tough I, to tell. I thought I thought he was over the line. Like I was surprised. I've looked at every angle of that, and they of course they would then would had to go and go for two to two to try to take it to tie the game. But Green Bay ended up winning 24-16. They're eight and two. Big win for them. But Kyle Allen's doing a very good job for Carolina now. Cam Newton's out for the rest of the year, mm-hmm. but Carolina's still in the mix for the playoffs. But I thought that boy, that was exciting. Just an exciting game. And I'm watching that game, the Dolphin game, and then the Steeler game all at the same time. Poor Brian Flores going to get run out of town by the Miami front office if he keeps winning games. But <laughs> big win for them over a, an injury uh, injury embattled um, Indianapolis Colts team. They, hey, two, two wins is two wins more than I thought they were going to have this season. Minnesota and Dallas was the night game, and we knew this was going to be a good one, and it lived up to the hype. It was exciting, and I don't know what the big story is about the end of the game. So Minnesota is up 28-24. Dallas comes down, and they have first and 10 on the Minnesota 19 with two minutes to go. They what is the problem with running Zico Elliott twice? Like it was first, it was it was it was second and two. No, they got it second and two, and they ran him twice, and then they won fourth down. They threw an incomplete pass. And now everyone is criti- criticizing Jason Garrett uh, for the play calling. Yeah. How do you dare? It's they weren't handing the ball off to a nobody. I thought Elliott was the one that was holding out. They need to bring him in. It's second and two. Why don't you hand the ball to him? Now I realize that Delvin Cook had a much better game. He had ninety-seven yards uh, compared to Elliott did. But I don't understand this. Like I would. What's a what? What is the big issue of handing the ball to Ezekiel Elliott when you're on a second and two. San Fran and Seattle tonight. San Fran undefeated, but Russell Wilson, probably the MVP if the league ended today. Um, who do you like tonight? I like Seattle. I think that I think that this is going to be great. San Francisco has to play Green Bay, the Ravens, at the Ravens and at the Saints coming up in four weeks. Uh, I think they have, they're undefeated now. They might have three losses in a few weeks. This is going to, I think they're, uh, this is Seattle. I think it's Russell Wilson. As much as we saw Joe Burrow win the Heisen Trophy, this is the game that Russell Wilson, it's on prime time. Everybody's watching it. He wins this game. He's going to be the MVP of the league. Ira, where are you, where are you headed this week? Um, not that big a win. We're going to go, as uh, you'll see, um, the Browns versus the Steelers on Thursday night, and then the Penn State versus Indiana on Saturday. It sounds like a pretty good week in store for you. I want to thank so much, uh, Andrea Chambly, also Randy Williams, for stopping by. We are out of time. On behalf of Ira, I'm Mike. Let's talk next Monday night. It's Ira on Sports.